Well, as you came in today, you may have seen the uh, PG-13 rating for this service. Uh, again, if you have junior high or high school students, they'll be fine. But we did want to let you know that we are about to encounter a rated R chapter of the Bible, and or at least PG-13, and I think it's because what's in this chapter is so painful. It's going to cover prostitution, it's going to have incest, it's going to have a level of pain and decadence that by the time you're done reading the chapter, you realize that God isn't even mentioned in the whole book, the whole chapter. You wonder, like, why is this in the Bible? And yet we're going to find that God works in the midst of the pain. God works in the midst of the dysfunction. And yet he's not working out front. He's not even mentioned. He's always working back in the shadows. About 20 years ago, when I started at church, I met this couple, one of our elders, down in Atlanta, and I was just really mesmerized uh, and impacted by the way they raised their kids and their hopes that their kids would, would be salt and light with a continual prayer. I was a videographer at one of the kids' weddings, and I was just so struck by how well they were doing as parents, something I wanted to live up to. I ran into him about a year ago, and as we were talking, he still had a dynamic faith. He and his wife had a strong marriage, and yet he shared some of the difficulties in the last few years as their son, whom they raised and loved, found himself caught into alcoholism, and it was through the complications of that addiction that he lost his marriage. They started going to Al-Anon and trying to cope with how do you wrestle with the idea of trying to help someone who sometimes doesn't want to help themselves. They also began to wrestle with the difficulty of figuring out how to do Easter's and Christmas and Thanksgiving now with a split family. And yet as he shared, it wasn't Eeyore-esque, he talked about how God was working in the midst of the darkness, how God was working in the midst of the shadows, the things he was learning about himself, the things that he and his wife were getting a chance to do by ministering to those in Al-Anon as they were being ministered to. As I thought about that story, I thought that's the feeling of the chapter we're looking at today. It's the idea that God works in the shadows and through the shadows. I mean, I want God to be in the limelight right in front of me. What are you doing and why? But God's often in the nightlight, in the midst of the darkness. He's there in the background, working, even when we can't see him. But not only does God work in the shadows, but he also works through the shadows, the darkness, the the, the betrayal, the rebellion, the difficulty, the pain. That God works with those shadows and through those shadows to accomplish his purposes. So we're going to look today at several shadowy activities of Judah. And my hope is that as you begin to see how God works in his life and through his family, You'll understand a God who keeps his promises even when we don't keep ours. A God who keeps his promises to us even when others haven't kept their promises to us. But mostly we're going to find a God who doesn't waste pain. He uses it in powerful ways. The book of Genesis was written by Moses to a group of people who have just come out of Egypt. And so they're headed toward the promised land. And with that, all kinds of new promises are coming to mind. They're remembering a a covenant made to Abraham. A promise of land, yes, but a promise of a Messiah. So as we open up chapter 38, I want to actually zoom forward before we move back. Because the readers would have been thinking about the Messiah. Now we're going to the land. I wonder if the promised one, the final forgiver and the final fixer will come as well. And in Genesis 49.10... They would have known this, but it's reiterated in the book that the scepter, the Messiah, the king, the sent one, the final forgiver, the final fixer would not depart from Judah. Judah would be the one whose lineage would lead to the Messiah. 
Well, if you're with us last week or two weeks ago and I acted out the whole drama, already the reader is shocked. Judah, the Messiah is supposed to come through Judah. This is the guy who sold off his brother. Judah, this is the guy who, who told dad his favorite son was dead and watched his dad grieve and did nothing about it. Maybe we could come through the line of Joseph. He seems like he's doing pretty well, but not Judah. And with that in mind, we come to chapter 38 to learn more about Judah. It came to pass at that time. At what time? After he had just sold off his brother and lied to his dad, that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hera. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain dun, 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 Canaanite, whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. Now, we don't hear the music as, as readers because we maybe don't remember what Abraham had begged his servant to do back in Genesis 24. If you were with us last year, we covered that. Abraham had said, I want to make sure my family, my grandkids, my great-grandkids all serve the Lord who has chosen me. So, when you go to help choose a wife for my son, you won't choose a wife from the land of Canaan. It was like Abraham's big wish before he died. And yet we see Judah, the one at which the Messiah is supposed to come through. And he's marrying someone who doesn't even believe in the God who would send the Messiah. And the reader is like, oh, no, no. How is God going to work with this? And they have some children. So she conceived this Canaanite woman and they bore a son and they begin to flip through the you know, thousand and one name book and say, what should we name this son? And Judah must have turned to her and said, what do you think? And she went, um, er, er, that's perfect. And so they named their first son Er. Then they conceived again and bore a son, and they called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son, and called his name Shalah. And he was born at Shazib when she bore him. Shazib means deceitful. And the writer is already telling us that this is a family that is born in deceit. This is a family who is, even the name of the place they were born was deceit, and that becomes the legacy of this family. And you're saying, how is God going to work with this? How is God, we don't have any, almost hope at this point that the Messiah, how is God going to work in the midst of this? This looks really, really bad. So bad, in fact, let me just take you back a couple generations. If you've never done a genogram, something you can do with your family, look at your grandparents, your, your great-grandparents, and look at the patterns of conflict, the parent, the, the patterns that are passed on through generations. I'll just do a quick one here just to show you how we get to this point. Isaac has a son named Jacob and Esau. And if you remember, Jacob lies to Isaac, tells him he's Esau when he's really not. You remember he, he lies to Esau, tricks him out of the birthright. Then he runs away for many years because Esau wants to kill him. He meets up with his uncle Laban. And what do we know about Uncle Laban? Uncle Laban's a liar. Lies to him, gives him the wrong wife and then a different wife. We just have a generational pattern within the family of lying. Then Jacob has 12 sons. One's name is Judah. And Judah lies to him about his son dying. He lies to him about the fact that he's gone. He lies about what really happened. He then marries this woman named Shua. They have three sons. Ur, we'll talk about why he's crossed off in a second. Onan, he's crossed off as well. We'll find out in a second. And Shalah. They're going to marry a woman named Tamar. 
And we're going to find out that Judah lies to her and she lies to him. What a wonderful Christian family. (laughs) And yet it's the idea that God works in the midst of our incredible dysfunction. You see, if you read the Bible and think that it's really it's primarily a prescription to how to live life, you're going to be very disappointed. If you read the Bible and realize it's about a God who's a hero and he works with the most difficult, the most painful, the most dysfunctional situation, and he's the hero, this chapter is going to make a lot of sense. So the shadow of the Messiah. Well, as we move to the next part of the verse, things get worse. So Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. And she too is not a follower of God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But she must have heard the stories that that she, as the first woman in this family, was part of the tribe that would bring about the Messiah. So even as someone who didn't grow up in the faith, you'll begin to see that she has some sense, a broken sense, but some sense that God might use her to bring about the final forgiver. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Now we don't know what this means. Maybe he was abusive to her. Maybe he was abusive in, in, the, in the neighborhood. But whatever it is, the word that's used here is wicked. So wicked was he, in fact, that the Lord killed him. Sort of a sad story. That's all we know about Ur. Well, he's gone. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew the heir would not be his. So it came to pass that when he went into his brother's wife, he admitted his seed on the ground, lest he should give an heir to the brother. What's rated R? And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, the Lord killed him. And again, if you're the reader, you're going, God, what are you doing? I mean, yeah, these people are doing some terrible things, but you went from three chances to have the Messiah. You're down to one chance to have the Messiah. Where's the Messiah going to come from? God's, the guys who are supposed to provide the Messiah are not even bad. They're not even disobedient. They're wicked. So wicked that God had to cut them off. What is God going to do with this? Which brings up a couple questions we probably need to address here in this part of the passage. Number one, why is it okay for God to kill people? I think a lot of folks struggle with the Old Testament because it seems like God's angry in the Old Testament and Jesus shows up in the New Testament and says, sorry about my dad, you know. (laughs) But instead, you see a Jesus who brags on his dad. So we've got to really wrestle with this. The God of the Old Testament is not different from the New Testament. So first of all, a little high ethics for a second. God can give and take life at will, and it's ethical. Now, why is that? Because God owns life. And it's because God owns life, he created life, it's his to give and take. And when he takes somebody, it's for his glory, and he might say, hey, I don't want them down there, I want them near me. Now, it's hard for us to feel that when we lose somebody. But first of all, the reason it's wrong for us to take life unjustly is because life doesn't belong to us. The reason suicide is wrong it's not because it's, everyone's sad. It's because we're taking something that doesn't belong to us. We're putting ourselves in the place of God. Now, there are times that God says there can be a just cause for killing. You know, I mentioned before self-defense. Uh, if you are defending the innocent against somebody who's trying to kill them, so you kill off the evildoer, that's a just cause. So in this case, we have God who has a just cause in that out of his goodness, he judges wickedness. Maybe he was rescuing uh, Ur, uh, Tamar from abuse. Maybe it was the, the kind of evil he was doing was affecting the community. We don't know. But that is why it's morally and ethical that God always acts out of his goodness. And the second thing that comes up is, what is this bizarre brother-in-law? 
that, okay, my brother died and I need to marry his wife. Well, this was a way in that culture, if you didn't have any heirs, if you were a widow and you didn't have any children, well, that was your social security plan. That was your protection plan. That was your provision plan. That if you were a widow without a family, you were destitute. And so God wanted to make a way to protect the woman. It almost looks like she's being horse traded here, but that's actually not the spirit of the culture. God was concerned about the widow and the woman. And so if her husband died without an heir, if there was a single brother who was not married yet, he was to marry her, and it was marriage, and to provide an heir for her so that she could be protected and so the family could be protected. So that was the spirit of the law. Well, Onan takes up part of the law. I want to marry her. But then he goes, wait a second. If dad dies and gives the inheritance, there used to be three brothers. Now there's two. So I get 50% of the heir. If I help provide an heir to Tamar, that means that we're back to three and I only get 33%. So I will use this woman for self-gratification, but I don't want to provide an heir to her and cut my inheritance. And God is so bothered by this using a woman in the greed that was behind it that he kills off Onan as well. Now, over time, uh, Catholic and Protestant theologians sort of have a disagreement on some of the minor points of of practical living. One is birth control. So within Catholic theology, for example, this particular passage is one of the ones that would say why birth control is wrong, because God's angry because he emitted on the ground. But I think if you're true to the text, that's not the main point. That's why Protestants aren't necessarily against birth control, because this, of many passages, the main point seems to be what I underlined. The issue wasn't that he did that. It was that he didn't want to provide an heir for his brother as God intended. That seems to be the main point here in the passage. So as the reader is reading this rebellion of Onan, they're saying, yeah, but what's God going to do? Where's the Messiah going to come from if he's already killed off two of them? So you get the next part of the passage. So Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is born. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. Now let's reread that and feel this. Now you're Tamar. You're going through the grief of having lost two husbands. You didn't do anything wrong. But because of these husbands that you loved, or at least the first one, God kills them. Because of their evil doing, think of the grief, think of the remorse, think of the challenges of what she's feeling as a widow. And now your father-in-law does something nice. He says he'll take care of you. You can stay in his house. Then he says, hey, I've got a younger son, and I'll have him marry you, but he's pretty young. You've got to wait. And then he says, I mean, I better wait for him to wait up and grow up because I don't want him to die like his brothers. I mean, just how insensitive, how... Or just how insensitive. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted. But his grief of losing his wife has got him susceptible to temptations maybe he wasn't before, Judah. So he went up to the sheep shears at Timnah, and he and his friend Hera, the Oldamite. Now Timnah is a code. Now we don't know the code, you'll find out in a second. But when I was in Israel a couple years ago... We got a chance to be up on the mountaintop where the tribe of Dan sat. And this is where, I mean, fast forward to the book of Judges. Samson, for example, was from the tribe of Dan. And if you remember, Samson would always go to Timnah. That's where he 
married the Phil, or tried to marry a Philistine woman until he got all mad and killed everybody. Um, he also, on his way to Timnah, would often visit a prostitute. So Timnah becomes a code over the years for prostitution, for harlotry. And what's interesting about this particular mountain is as Samson was making his way to Timnah, everyone from the mountaintop, as you can see from this perspective where I'm standing, you can see Samson going. He would have killed the lion somewhere about here, ripped it open. The bees appeared there. He shows up here, visits the prostitute in Timnah, and everybody could see it. It was like a movie. Oh, there he goes to Timnah again. He'd get mad at the Philistines. He'd let all their uh, fields on fire, you know, and then it'd be like, oh, my goodness, the Philistines are going to kill us. The whole thing was on display. So keep that in mind because Timnah, even back in Genesis, must be known for its prostitution. So it was told to Tamar, hey, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep. Wink, 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 wink. And she immediately goes, oh, okay, I know what's going on. He just lost his wife. He's heading to Timnah. She took off her widow's garments. She covered herself with a veil. She wrapped herself and sat in an open place that was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown and that she was not given to him as a wife. So he's not kept his word. She realized she's going to be a widow. And again, at some broken level, I, I think you see an act of faith here. It's at a broken level, get me wrong. But she goes, well, I'm not going to be married to the third one. I thought God was going to use me to be the deliverer of the Messiah. And so in that brokenness, she decides to go and dress up like a prostitute. So Judah saw her. He thought she was a harlot because she covered her face. He turned to her, by the way, and said, please, I love the please, please let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Dun, 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 dun. So she said, and that's deal time, well, what will you give me that you may come into me? He said, well, um, how about a young goat from the flock? And she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? So he didn't have the young goat with him. He said, no, how about, how about I'll come back later and, and uh, I'll bring you the goat later. And if we sleep together now, you know, this kind of thing. She said, well, how would I know you're going to bring the goat? He says, well, I'll give you a pledge. Well, what do you want? I would like your signet ring, your cord, and your staff. And he's very personal. It's not like... This would be the one that represented the tribe, represent who you were. So he would want this back and to trade the goat later. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And we don't know if that happened at one time or this was you know, ongoing for days or weeks, but she conceived. So she arose and went away. She lay aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. So Judah... Gets back town. She, he sends a young goat by the hand of a friend, the Oldamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand. But he didn't find her. And again, he didn't want the embarrassment of going back. So he sends a guy with a goat, says, go find a woman, get my pledge back. I don't want to get caught in this thing. So he heads back there. He asks the men of that place, Timnah, saying, hey, uh, has anybody seen the, uh, you know, that harlot that openly sits by the roadside? And they said, uh, there's, no, there's no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I can't find her. Also, the men of the place said there's no harlot in that place. And Judah said, well, then let her take them for herself. She can just keep that lest we be ashamed. For I sent the young goat. I tried to do what I, I, I meant, and you have not found her. Now, several things are striking here. Number one, here's a guy who's willing to keep his promise to a prostitute, but not to his daughter-in-law. Here's a guy who's willing to keep a promise to the prostitute, but not to his God. And yet it seems relatively oblivious to that fact. So oblivious, in fact, that when you see the next part of the chapter, it just gets shocking. 
So again, we read on and things get worse. So it came to pass three months later that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. Judah, the patriarch, what are we going to do about this? So Judah said, bring her on her and burn her, burn the witch, burn the witch. I can't believe that this kind of thing would happen in my family. Can you believe that people would go to harlots and be unfaithful? No, no, not under my watch. This kind of thing is so inappropriate, so wrong. The hammer's going to come down hard here. And you're reading it going, what? A hypocrite. A capital H on your robe. Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Self, self, righteous. And again, this is where the Bible and the message of the gospel comes. And it shows that the good news of the gospel can rescue you from immorality, but also from self-righteous morality. That both these characters are equally in need of an encounter with God. Well, tomorrow must be a chess player. So she was brought out. She sends word to her father-in-law saying... By the man to whom these things belong, I'm with child. I know that since you're so angry and want to hold people account, you not only want to hold me account, but the guy who got me pregnant account. Dun, 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 dun. So she says, could you please, I love the please again, could you please determine whose these are? The signet, the cord, and the staff. And here is a powerful turning point. Judah could have blamed, he could have hid, he could have continued, I don't want to be ashamed. But Judah acknowledged them. And then he says, and is so humbled by the embarrassment, so humbled by his self-righteousness, so humbled by his unbrokenness, that he says, oh, she is more righteous than me. Because I did not give her to Shalom, my son. I didn't keep my promises. I didn't do what I said. I haven't honored God. I haven't honored her. I haven't kept my word. And he never knew her again. And I think the reason this chapter is in the Bible where it is, is one, we're going to contrast Judah's immorality with Joseph resisting temptation next week. So I get one reason it's there. The second reason is that this becomes the turning point where Judah's self-righteousness and his anger flips and sets him up to the tenderness to actually petition for Benjamin ten chapters from now and begin to see what he's done to others, what he's done to his father. This is the turning point. And yet again, you've read this, and so far, God's name hasn't even shown up. Which is why I said to begin with, God works in the shadows. You're saying, I have not seen God working much in this chapter, Chad. You're going to see in a second. He's been always working in the shadows. But more than that, he's been working through the shadows. I mean, is there, is there a chapter of the Bible with this much, much dysfunction packed in there? And yet this chapter, God is working in ways that are going to change the trajectory of history. Keep reading. It came to pass that at that time, for giving birth, that behold, twins were in her womb. Twins, like Jacob and Esau. And so it was that when she was giving birth, that, that one of the children put out his hand from the womb, and the midwife took a scarlet, uh, a scarlet thread and bound it around his hand. And he's back in. Uh, that was when it came out first. Then it happened that as he drew back his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, well, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, they named him Perez, which means a breakthrough. 
Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Chad, that didn't help. I don't see much God. What more? Well, how do you apply this to your life? And here it comes. Let's go back one more time. Look what happened. Look at all the dysfunction. So Judah lies to Tamar by not giving her Shalah. Tamar lies to Judah by dressing up like a prostitute. They have two sons, one named Perez, one named uh, Zerah. Ur has been killed by God. Onan has been killed by God. It's a history of dysfunction. If this was your family tree, this is the part you don't talk about at parties. This is the part that you sort of go, <laughs> yeah, uh, what happened to Onan? Well, yeah, Onan, he, he had a difficult time. He had a, a difficult upbringing, right? You hide this stuff. You pretend it doesn't exist. You don't talk about the black sheep of the family. And yet, thousand plus years later, Jesus says, I want to introduce to you the new kingdom I have. I want to introduce to you what I'm all about. And in Matthew chapter 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, who begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. And Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Family genealogy was so important in tracing your lineage back to what tribe you were in. You would not include a woman in your genealogy any more than you'd include a hamster. You would not include a foreigner in your genealogy any more than you'd put a cartoon and you would definitely edit out or blot out the scandalous activities in your genealogy. And yet Jesus, up front and center, says, the kingdom I have, the new movement I have, is I'm the kind of person who can forgive guilt, I can cover shame, and I will come out boldly at my introduction and say, I am the one who works with everyone. I'm proud of women. I'm proud of men. I can cover shame and I can sing and brag on Tamar. I can brag on Judah. I can say that Perez, the breakthrough, I use that story to break through my story of forgiveness, to break through my story of mercy, to break through my story of redemption. If you're looking for a God where everyone is involved and I can work with whatever is going on in your life, you've come to the right place. I bring healing and I bring hope and I bring renewal. And if God can work through this kind of dysfunction we discovered, even though reading the chapter you don't even see him, and yet this was his way that he brought about the Messiah all the way to King David to Jesus, can't you trust him in your life too? Can't you trust him for a Perez, a breakthrough? Don't you want a breakthrough in your life? I think that's the application we have is that this week, today, this moment, say, God, I need to trust you for a Perez, a breakthrough. In the shadows of my life, because I, I don't even see you working, I need a breakthrough to, to trust that you're still working in the midst of the dysfunction, because I'm in chapter 38. Or maybe you're trusting God for a Perez to work with the dysfunction. You can't pretend it's not bad, it's bad. You can't pretend it's not hurtful, because it is. Say, God, but would you use it? Would you use it? And maybe it's Judah, you realize you've been caught in lust or immorality or adultery. And you have a lot of shame over that. And that shame and that difficulty is, is deserved because of what you chose to do. And you say, God, I just, I need a breakthrough to overcome my temptation. I also need a breakthrough to use this, use this in some way that I couldn't have imagined. For some of us, we've been on the, on the Tamar. We've been abused. We've been hurt. Things have done things to us, said things to us. 
And we're so covered in shame. We think if people know what happened to us that we could never be accepted or loved. We can't imagine that there's a God who would put us in his genealogy and brag to the world about us. We don't think we're loved like that because of the way we were treated. Because of what happened to us. And the message of the Bible is that God wants to brag on you. God wants to embrace you. God wants to heal you. God wants to give you a Perez or a breakthrough in your life. To say your shame really can be covered. That you can be whole again. Your life will not be based on what somebody did to you. It will be based on what I've done to you. That I've loved you and I'm the lover of your soul. Some of the ways to trust God. is I think it's important to get really specific with God. Sometimes that means tracing your fears. And sometimes our fears are, boy, if this happens and this happens and this happens, oh my goodness, I'm not sure if I'll be able to handle that. And anxiety takes us all the way down the road. And we trace our fears all the way down. We say, God, if the worst thing that could possibly happen, happen, I'm scared. And God says, what if the worst thing ever happened and I was still with you? Maybe that's your Perez, to know that your worst case scenario that keeps you up at night, God would still be there. And he could still work. Maybe you need to trace your patterns. Maybe doing a genogram is something to be helpful for you and go, oh my goodness, look at these patterns through my family. Look at the inability to communicate. Look at the inability to prioritize. Look at the, the inability to open up. Whatever it is, you begin to see the lying or the deceit or the adultery or the divorce or the conflict. And you say, God, specifically, I need a breakthrough. I need a Perez. I need to break through this habit, break through this pattern. I need to pray against this generational Call it a curse. Call it a pattern that's from past on me. God, I need to break through. But get real specific about God. I'm praying against the spirit of deceit. I'm praying against the lying that I've inherited. God, I want a breakthrough. Or maybe it's just pain. God, I need a breakthrough from the pain of what's happened to me or the pain that I've caused. God works through pain. You know, if you'd asked us five years ago when we adopted Quinn how God might use the circumstances of a single mom, a, a, a dad and a mother who were on drugs. That was the biological family, not Beth and I. Um, <laughs> and then the diagnosis of autism and, and the diagnosis of, of septo-optic dysplasia. And, and I'd say, you know, is God going to work in the midst of this? So I got real specific in asking God for a prayer about a month ago. I said, God, you know, Traveling down to the hospital, you know, it's two hour there, hour back, sitting in a room for a half hour, 45 minute appointment. It's just we don't have time. And then if you if you do it once a week, it doesn't even helpful anyway. The research says you need like five to 15 hours a week to help his speech therapy issues. And God, I, I need a Perez. I, I need somebody who can help Quinn and help us help Quinn, who can come to our house and is affordable. <laughs> And to help us with a breakthrough. And just a month ago, so I put this ridiculous ad into the care.com, you know. And it was, I'm looking for somebody trained in ABA, which is a very specific speech therapy for autism, and, and could come to our house to do speech appointments. And through an unbelievable series of events that I can't go into all the details of, about a month ago, a woman started uh, coming to our house. Quinn is starting to say words. He's got his first couple two-word phrases. She comes to our house not three times, which she originally thought, but five times. She actually has worked with our staff that work with Quinn here at the church, teaching them how to do ABA therapy, teaching us how to do ABA therapy. Uh, my, uh, he's starting kindergarten this year. She's met with the school teachers and teaching them how to do the therapy. And in a breakthrough moment, and if you told me a month ago, hey, Chad, this is even possible, I'd say, right. But God broke through. Not how I expected, bigger than I expected. Trust God. Ask God to break through in whatever circumstances you're in.
Doesn't mean it's still not tough, because it is for us as well. But God is beginning to break through. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Because maybe as we've uncovered a lot of this gack in this chapter, a lot of things from your past have come up. And you wonder if God can be for you. That there could be a God who could really break through in the circumstances of your life. That there is a God who could take the gack and the grime and the difficulty that you've been through. And I want you to know there is. There is a God who can be for you. So I'd like you to hear this next song, and I'd like you to hear this as a whisper or a call from God to you. Where God is saying, I'm for you. Hear my voice through these lyrics. I want to perform a Perez in your life. Maybe this morning you need a reminder that God is for you. I want to give us a chance just to respond to God in prayer. Maybe you want to start by just saying, God, help me believe that more deeply. See, when you're in the midst of, of shadows, it's hard to believe that God's still for you when he's in the shadows. So maybe you want to say, God, give me the faith to believe you're working in the background. Maybe the thing you've been praying that God would take away, that dark shadow, this is the moment you say, God, I've been asking you to take it away. But instead, I want to ask you to use it. Use it for your purposes. God, use this for your glory. Maybe you want to tell God specifically, say, God, I want a Perez, a breakthrough in this area. And tell him that area. we do thank you for the words of that song that you are so gracious you're so kind you're so generous you're so gentle you come near us when we're grieving like Judah was you come near us when we're hurting like Tamar was you come near us when we feel violated or wronged and you draw us near to yourself and you say it's going to be okay I'm here now. And we invite you to be here. And your Holy Spirit to be with us in a very tangible way. And take what was intended for evil and intended for good. And we ask this in His name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today. We're going to continue our journey next week. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes. If you're new to Horizon, we'd love to put a name with a face. The third door on the left is the hearth room. Thanks again.